You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. This week, I sat down with the former head of the Colombian Navy, Admiral Hernando Wills Vélez, to discuss all things intelligence and Colombia. This is part of an ongoing effort at SpyCast to double down on the international part of the International Spy Museum name. But it also coincides with a pop-up exhibit at our museum on a Colombian operation that saved hostages and where intelligence was absolutely key. Operation Haki. Colombia and its navy must reckon with a unique combination of security challenges, including Marxist insurgents, right-wing paramilitaries, drug cartels, crime syndicates, and all of this made even more complex by the sheer size and internal diversity of the country. Jungles and deserts, mountains and beaches, from well-developed to undeveloped and by its geographic location at the crossroads of the Americas. To sum up, it is a remarkably fascinating case study for the role intelligence might play. Admiral Wills was also the commander of the Pacific Fleet, head of the Colombian Coast Guard, and a former aide-de-camp to the President of Colombia. In this episode we discuss intelligence from the point of view of a senior military officer, the pressure of high command, the intelligence landscape in Colombia, the professionalization of intelligence in Colombia and how it helped him in his role, and the role the US has played in supporting the development of Colombian intelligence. Hernando was broad-minded, warm-hearted and down-to-earth. I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking to him. I'm really pleased to get a chance to speak to you. I really enjoyed it when we met the other month and I'm really glad that we've now got time to do a podcast together. So I want to thank you for taking the time to speak to me. I was just thinking when I was preparing for this interview, head of the Colombian Navy, for most people, they never end up in a position of such responsibility. So for the majority of listeners who haven't been in that kind of position, what's it like? It sounds like a lot of pressure, a lot of a lot of stress. Um, tell us a little bit more about it. What was it like to be the head of a Navy? Well, thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you, Andrew, for this opportunity. It's, uh, it's a big honor for me to, to be talking to you and, and to, to speak to the audience. Uh, and that part that you were mentioning, I mean, it's, it's just like... Uh, uh, you know, the time goes uh, so fast. I joined the Navy when I was uh, 15 years old, very young. I finished high school in the Naval Academy. And, and then you, you start like, uh, you know, in your regular business uh, as a young lieutenant in ships and uh, destroyers. 
positions uh, on land, and all of a sudden you see yourself as a as an admiral. I mean, it's 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 a crazy thing, and uh, and and yet you're right. It's a big responsibility. I was uh, I had the privilege to be selected by by the president to to lead the Colombian Navy. And uh, especially in, in, in such uh, difficult times. At that time, we were just in the middle of, of this big struggle with uh, internal conflicts. And, uh, uh, but it was a, a great opportunity and a great moment of my life because uh, uh, I had the opportunity to, to do things in favor of the Colombian people. Uh, and so so that, was, that was great. And the time period when you were the head was 2013 to 2015, is that correct? Yes, 2013 to, to 2015. And there was, a, a, at that time we were just, or the government was beginning the talks with the former FARC a terrorist organization in order to, to, to sign like a, a document to end the, the conflict. So it was very tricky because we were in the middle of the fight, and there were some conversations at the same time. Uh, so it was uh, it was tricky, but the morale of the of the troops and the navy was was really high. Uh, at the same time, we were actually uh, doing a big effort against narco traffic in both coasts of Colombia, you know, the Caribbean and the Pacific coast. So we were very much involved in everything at that time. I want to go on to discuss the role that intelligence played throughout your career, but I was just thinking before we get there, it could be good just to help our listeners visualize some of the maritime environment that, that the Colombian Navy operates in. So you mentioned it there, there's the the Pacific side, the uh, Atlantic Caribbean Sea side, there's also important rivers and waterways, the Amazon and so forth. So help us understand just the the geography of, of where the Colombian Navy operates. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that question. And Well, basically, you know, Colombia uh, is located at the uh, northern part of South America and we are very close to Panama. Actually, Panama used to be one of uh, the Colombian departments. So we have coast on the Caribbean and then on the Pacific. Uh, the geography is very complex. I mean, it's very uh, interesting. And uh, basically, it is good for good things and good for bad things. So it, basically, I think it favors the action of illegal groups. Uh, if you go to the Pacific coast, uh, it's... Uh, it is more than 1,300 kilometers of coastline. We don't have like roads over there, very little airports. So all the, the all the transport of goods and people are made by sea or by the rivers. And, and there is tropical, tropical jungle everywhere. You'll find like a like a a river every hundred hundred and fifty meters, or it's crazy. A lot of rivers, and uh, the the state presence is very scarce. I mean, uh, we don't have uh, like a strong uh, state presence, and that facilitates the actions of uh, of illegal persons that want to try to do like uh, narco trafficking and the like. And the, 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 the Caribbean part is a little bit different, is, is more developed. We have the, the bigger cities over there, like Cartagena, Barranquilla, Santa Marta. But we have like three uh, definite zones. In the northern part, is like desert, uh, no vegetation at all. In the mid part... You have the big cities, big ports, and we have a lot of control, state control over there. And in the southern part, close to the to to Panama, uh, uh, you'll find similar conditions as the Pacific. So the, it's it's very like very unique, and uh, and basically the 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 maritime environment is 
we we have the two thousand two hundred miles of uh, economic exclusive zone. So the Navy has to be aware of you know protecting that zone every time, both in the Caribbean and the Pacific. And we have like ar- archipelagos, San Andres in the Caribbean and uh, Malpelo in the Pacific. So it's it's quite a a big. Uh, area of responsibility for the Navy in mm. that part. And when you're transferring ships from the Caribbean to the Pacific, do they go through the canal or do they go around the, the Cape? No, we go through the canal. We have very good relationship with, with Panama and we have some agreements that facilitates the, the transit of uh, naval ships. So basically we just do some paperwork and, uh, and they, they have uh, priority. Wow. And tell us about the role that intelligence played in your career. So I guess at every level it would play some role, but when did you start first begin to think of yourself as I'm consuming intelligence here, intelligence is informing my decision-making much more? At what point in your career did you see yourself as a, a consumer and user of intelligence? Yeah, well, at, at the beginning... Like my first uh, assignments were on board ships, so I was not really much involved in, in the intelligence process. Uh, but my first uh, job in that sense was I was the cryptographer of the ship. Oh one, wow! Okay. One uh, <laughs> former American destroyer. So I remember that I, I spent a lot of time coding and decoding all the messages of the position of the ship and information that came from the headquarters. And it was, I mean, the whole night doing that process with uh, special machines that we use at that time. Uh, so I, I started to, to realize how important it was to keep the, the secret and, uh, and somehow preserve the information. So that was... And, and the captain was very, very serious about that. So basically, sometimes I, I, I didn't sleep at night because I was working on this paperwork and coding and decoding. Uh, but, uh, but I really started uh, having some training on intelligence with the promotion courses. Like uh, the first one, when, when I was uh, starting to be a lieutenant commander, there was like a specific area of intelligence. So we start looking about the intelligence cycle and the importance, and we did some exercises regarding that. So that was like the first exposure to that. Uh, then when I was like uh, in the position of uh, commanding officer of ships, uh, I received intelligence before getting underway. So normally... I, I have those meetings with the intelligence community before uh, uh, getting underway. And uh, we also have some equipment on board that was uh, equipment uh, uh, for ESM, uh, collecting intelligence. So we we have to have a a strong communication with the intelligence uh, agencies on land. So that was like uh, the other part. And then uh, when we, when I was uh, uh, assigned as commander of the fleets uh, in the Pacific, and when you have such responsibility, then you start to realize that intelligence is very, very important. And is it something that you enjoyed, um, the challenge of working with intelligence? Is that something that you enjoyed? Or I guess every commander would love to know everything, but there's a degree of unpredictability and there's an information landscape that you are trying to wrestle with. Yeah, help, help us understand, is that part of the job that you enjoyed using the intelligence or working with it? Well, I, I always enjoy uh, working with intelligence, but the relationship with, with the agencies, in this case, the naval agencies that work uh, with me at that time, uh, they were very dependable on the people. Some, sometimes you have easy people to talk with in the intelligence community, and sometimes you have difficult, difficult uh, uh, people to, to interact. So that, that was uh, somehow a challenge. 
But I think that if you have clear your objectives and what you need, what information you need for intelligence, everything starts to flow uh, in the right way. But when is it you joined the Navy? Well, I joined the Navy in 1976. 1976. But it was uh, five years at the Naval Academy. And then I, uh, I became an officer in June 1980. Uh, so after that, I spent uh, all, the, all the way until 2015. 2015, 2015 <laughs> wow. <laughs> so so <laughs> that was a long period of time. So during that period, you saw... You saw a lot in terms of the evolution of Colombian politics, Colombian security dynamics, and also the evolution of Colombian intelligence. So those are some big things then. But tell us, let's start off with some of the uh, security situation that, that you faced over the course of your career. So I know that the narco traffickers and the FARC and so forth become important. I always understand, like, when you first entered the Navy as an active uh, sailor, what were the main preoccupations of the Colombian Navy and, and how did that shift and evolve up until the period when you left? Yeah, well... Good question. <laughs> <laughs> a big one. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, uh, Colombia is a country with uh, a lot of difficulties. And we have a, a history of violence since ever. We have a, a lot of civil wars. And, uh, and the last big one was at the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, when I got out of the Naval Academy, the main effort in the country was to confront the insurgencies that they were aiming to take power by using arms and intimidating all the all the the, the population so that was like the the big concentration of effort but our forces at that time were not like well prepared and the intelligence was not that good at that time with time we started to realize how important it was to professionalize our military forces, our national police, and basically intelligence. And, and those things were, were coming together basically with the support of uh, international partners like the United States. We received a lot of support on that. And then there was like a, something that happened in our country after the, the fall of the Berlin War because... These insurgencies, normally they were supported by, by communism. And uh, after that, they needed more financing. So basically they jumped into narco-trafficking. So, and that was a big challenge for the security forces because we have both things at the same time. We have at that time to somehow diversify the efforts and some, somehow concentrate efforts within the national police for the citizen security and narco-traffic. The military forces were more concentrated on the big structures of the terrorist groups. And in the case of the Navy, we were more oriented to like uh, structures in the border areas, like uh, border rivers, and of course, narco-traffic at sea and in the rivers. So th that was like somehow the, the specifics of each service. And the intelligence services started to specialize in those areas too. Basically, that was. And, and we basically, we received a lot of support, a lot of support uh, from the U.S., from other uh, countries too, as the UK in some specific things related to narco-traffic. But we realized how important it was to, to have a professional intelligence and a professional military and security forces. And when you say professional, do you mean making things more systematized, making more processes, more structures, more predictable and reliable uh, means of, of gathering and, and funneling information? Is that is that what you mean? Rather than help us understand what you mean a little bit more. 
we progress a lot in the organization of the intelligence. And that was a, a key point because before that, we used to have people working on intelligence, giving information that was not that reliable. Mm. And, and after this process of professionalization, I guess, we started with intelligence schools in the services. Let's say the Army had the first intelligence school in 1985. And, and the Navy was around 1995, 10 years after, and so, so was the Air Force. But now we have those intelligence uh, schools with a lot of support, and you have better people, well-prepared, and, and with a good sense of what were they doing and what they need to deliver. And uh, because of that, then we realized that it was very important to have the best people on intelligence. But they were somehow left aside. Let's say you have an infantry officer from the army working in intelligence, somehow he was out of his field of competence. So what we did, we create the specialties of intelligence in the forces. The Army did it in 1992. So now you have intelligence officers as artillery officers. So they have their path or their career path very clear so they, they can dedicate to that. In the Navy, we did that in 2006, and also the Air Force. So now, if you want to go to the intelligence community, you will have a career path, and you have training, education, opportunities, and you can be all the way up to be general, to be admiral, and to be the head of your service. So that was very important, uh, and that increased the, the quality of, of the people and, and the results. And because of the geographical challenges that you mentioned, and I guess intelligence plays an even more important role because because of those challenges, right? Yes, yes. Basically, it's uh, uh, everything is always changing, you know. And, and I can tell you, in, in, in on the Navy side, uh, what we did was we, we create special intelligence groups all over the country with some like. Uh, Areas of responsibility, Pacific, the Caribbean, the eastern part, the southern part. And, and, and those, those uh, groups were very strong in human intelligence and technical intelligence and analysis. They, they were concentrated on that, on that portion of the country. But uh, one of the good things that we did and we did with all services was the sharing information. Try to collaborate with everyone. Sometimes that is not easy. The services, some, sometimes they, they have, you know, to preserve, you know, the results. But basically, I think that we achieved that. We achieved that sharing of information. And, and sometimes the, this, uh, for instance, the narcotraffic uh, situation have shifts. These guys concentrate sometime like in the Pacific coast. In that part, they normally use different methods to traffic, you know, the drug. They, they go south to other countries or they go in semi-submersibles. Sometimes they could use like uh, fast boats, go fast, fishing boats, aircraft. Uh, sometimes they shift to the Caribbean. Sometimes they do both. So the, the, the sharing of information between these uh, intelligence centers is very important and has been very important for that. Mm -hmm. And also international. Wow. And who are some of your major intelligence partners in the region? I know you mentioned the relationship with the United States is extremely important, but the region uh, where you are, who are some of your major partners or in your position, who were some of the other intelligence services from different countries that you communicated with? The most important are, as you mentioned, the, the United States and, and the UK, uh, because with them we have training and information sharing. With other countries in the region, you know, our partners in Central 
America, in the Caribbean, uh, also in also south. We have a, a very strong communication for share information and share intelligence. Uh, we have basically uh, like bilateral agreements with uh, friendly countries in the region, and, and that's how we how we manage this situation. But basically, it's only sharing information. If you talk about training and, and technical stuff, only with the, with the U.S. and sometimes with the U.K. But right now, it, there's something interesting happening because all this knowledge that our military forces have acquired over, over the years, now we are training our neighbors in the region. Basically, some countries in South America... Uh, the Caribbean and Central America. So we are training those guys in military tactics and also in basics of intelligence. I'm just thinking as well, you know, the yeah, the maritime environment in Colombia, I'm just thinking about it as the head of the Navy. It must be quite interesting and challenging because you're, you've got this land bridge and then you've got some of your forces here and some of your forces there the Caribbean and then the Pacific, and then you've got all the waterways. So wh where would you? Where were you based? Where was your headquarters? Was it on the, the isthmus that, le that led from Central America into South America so that you were in the center? Or, yeah, help me understand that. Yeah, well, the, the Navy is, is organized basically in f four naval forces, we call that. Uh, naval forces, Caribbean... Naval Force Pacific, we have uh, an Eastern Naval Force, which is like a riverine naval force in the border, uh, in the eastern border of Colombia with Orinoco River and Meta River, all these rivers. And we have the Southern Naval Force, which is bordered with Brazil, Ecuador, and Peru, the Amazon River and the Putumayo River. So we have cover all the... We call it 360 degrees of our borders. So you have like a, a big command in each one of those. Then you have the chief of operations of the Navy who is in charge of these four forces and the headquarters are in Bogota. And above him is the chief of the Navy. So, so, so basically the, the headquarters are located in Bogota, we have something like a like a small pentagon over there with all the forces, the minister of defense, and and uh, the central central command is over there. But uh, all these forces, they have the autonomy and the and the the means, the assets to to do their own operations. What we do, like in the in in the headquarters, is to take a look at the big picture and try to relocate some assets. Maybe you need to move some more ships to the Pacific coast uh, or back forth. It depends. But each force has its own assets, its own personnel. And, and, and it's a very interesting thing uh, about the Colombian Navy. And I think that, that that's the, the point of um, my career when I was really involved with, with intelligence is all of these forces, naval forces, they have land responsibility. They have area of AOR in land too. So all of a sudden, you are the commander of a Pacific fleet, but you also have two marine brigades and six or seven marine battalions working on land, protecting all the population in that part. So that's a, like a, you have the maritime operations, you have the rivers, and you have the land operations. And that's where intelligence, in my point of view, came uh, right on top to, to help us, you know, solve those kind of problems. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler 
the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. And during this period when you're in the Navy as well, this is the classic period when everyone thinks of the narco traffickers and the the war on drugs. This is a kind of classic period uh, in the United States, the Reagan era, the war on drugs, and, and George H.W. Bush and, and Colombia. This is the time of uh, Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel and the Cali cartel. So, so this all happens during your career. Tell us what it was like to be you looking out on this evolving war on drugs and on narco traffickers. Yeah, well, it was it was a tough time. I agree. Uh, uh, I remember when when Pablo Escobar was uh, killed by the by. The, Colombian security forces. I was at that time. I was working as the aide de camp of the Colombian president. So it was interesting to to see how uh, uh, the efforts were uh, uh, conducted. Uh, we used to have like a search block to do that specific task with the Medellin cartel. All the forces were involved in you know in different aspects, but that was led by the, the national police. So it was like, uh, uh, at that time, the country was uh, really in trouble. Uh, but after that, uh, we started like, uh, gaining control of the country with, uh, I will say that with uh, much bigger support to the forces, with uh, like a comprehensive strategy, uh, basically, the government at that time uh, uh, put together this strategy with with the forces, with the police, and with the, the whole state doing things in the same direction. We used to have that separate. So I, I think that that was the key point to to turn over the situation in the country. But you are right; it was really hard. We lost a lot of people in that narcotraffic uh, war. But after that, those after those events, any, anyway, we still have narcotraffic right now. It's very hard in the sense that that a lot of people is killed because of that. There are some people putting money in, and uh, you will find a lot of violence. So uh, I think that our people, our military and our police are very committed to continue this fight. And... Help us understand the role that you think intelligence played in in the war against the narco traffickers. How did intelligence help the the navy, the marines, or the government uh, get the upper hand? I know it's something that continues to this day, but during that high watermark of Medellin and Cali, how did the how did intelligence help you and your job over the years? Well, basically, I was mentioning that with the professionalization of, of the intelligence, we have this uh, very strong group of people and, and very uh, committed to, to do that, that they were trained and they were prepared to work in something that we call destructors. Who is in charge of this network? What other people is helping with the second level, third level? So they, they start working, you know, and gathering information, gathering intelligence, making analysis. So they, some point, they, they gain the expertise to, to really understand what was going on, you know, and who was the boss and, and how was the dynamic of the illicit uh, uh, business. 
And with, with that, it was much easier for the forces, the action forces, to move in. But without that work of intelligence, it would be almost impossible, impossible to do things. Because uh, as you know, these, these guys, the criminal people, they are always protected by civilians. Uh, they bribe a lot of people. Uh, so I think that the intelligence, uh, like the jump in intelligence was when we had the capacity to, to really understand the structure or the criminal structures and after that, we can go in and target those guys. Mm -hmm. And I believe that in, like in some countries, the Marines are seen as being less corruptible than the army. Is that also the case in Colombia? Like, let's keep this within the, the Navy or the Marines because they're, they're less infiltrated by people that are colluding with narco-traffickers and so forth. Is that the case or is that not... Not really the no, case. No, I don't see. I don't see like a, a big difference in, within the services in Colombia. Uh, the the main point is is that we have the national police, which is part of the Minister of Defense. It's a strange thing. A lot of people don't understand why, but it's because of our history. And and I think for now it's good to have the national police in the Minister of Defense. And the national police, they are the ones who are like interacting with the population every day. They are always there. And then we have the military forces, which is another like different things as compared to other countries. Because in Colombia, the military is allowed to conduct operations within the country to protect the people. So basically uh, that put us like a, in a very sensitive situation because we are uh, conducting military operations within the country. And, so, and, and this is a tricky thing because sometimes uh, people don't like that, people like that, uh, but we have to. This is a fact. We, we need to do that. The army is more involved like in, in the whole territory of Colombia. The Marines are smaller than the army and we are... And, they only have like the, the coastal parts of the, of the Pacific coast in this case. And the Navy is basically at sea, so less interaction with the people. So maybe uh, that gives that sense because the Navy is a little bit out of that and the Air Force is flying and they don't have that kind of uh, interaction with the, with the civilians. So maybe that's the reason that the people believe that, but it's because of the of the amount of people. Help us understand. You've already mentioned them, but crystallize for our listeners some of the unique intelligence challenges that Colombia faces. So if there's people that listen to this podcast and maybe they've been involved in the world of intelligence, but help them understand, um, well, you have you probably have never faced this or here's some of the things that I've faced that you probably haven't. Is there any particular intelligence challenges that Colombia faces or being uh, in the Colombian Navy? I think that intelligence is always challenging. I can give you an example. When I was uh, in the Pacific Coast was the commander of that fleet. And uh, we started, what are we doing here? What do we need to do? Basically pr protect the people, protect the civilians, protect the neighborhoods and everything. And I remember that I have at that time around 16 to 20 illegal structures over there. FARC, France, ELN, narco-traffic, and criminal gangs in that part. So, so we, and then I have a meeting with the intelligence people. I say, okay, we need to know where are these guys? What are they doing? Who are they? Who joins? Who leaves? That, where are their, their uh, operational capabilities? And what are their objectives? Once I had that, we were like, uh, 
on, on these meetings. Then we establish our strategy because we have the information. So we start strengthening the presence in every municipality to protect the people and uh, doing operations as far as the neighborhoods at, as we can with intelligence, basically to have these people away from the municipalities. But we could not do that if we don't have that information of intelligence. And that intelligence was dynamic, always evolving day by day, day by day. What are the challenges here? Human intelligence, for me, was the big challenge because you need to put people on land. And those were like very uh, extreme areas, very far away, weak communications. So that was a big challenge, you know, to have those connections and, and establish like those uh, relationships with the locals in every time. Uh, I think that was one of the biggest. But without the intelligence information, we could not do anything because otherwise it was just being there waiting for some attack on our troops. Overtaking those challenges, I think that the intelligence in, in my time over there did great. And just thinking about your time being the commander of the Pacific Fleet and being the head of the Navy and some of the other jobs that you've had, which one did you enjoy the most? Because uh, I guess everyone had different challenges. I guess, I guess in an intelligence sense, like when you were commander of a ship or when you were head of the Pacific Fleet or head of the Navy, was one of them more gratifying than the other because some you're more involved in strategy and plans and some of the others you're more on the operational side you're involved like help, help me understand if you could go back to one right now for a year which one would you go back to well, <laughs> or I none think, of them maybe <laughs> I think I have three I, I mean the, the, the first one is being being the commanding officer of a frigate was like uh, you know the top because uh, when you join the Navy, that's your main objective. Be at command of one of these kind of uh, ships. Uh, and, and because when you are in, the, in such position and, and you go underway, I mean, you are the boss. You are handling the ship. Everything depends on you. Uh, so I think that was a, a very, very amazing experience. The other one on the operational side I, I really think that was my time in the in the Pacific Fleet. It was uh, uh, 2010 and 2011. Uh, we were like in one of the peaks of the of the confrontation, uh, narco traffic, FARC, uh, terrorist groups. So we were very active. It was a day by day operations, planning, uh, intelligence. Uh, changing, uh, arranging the, 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 the troops, moving troops around, asking for support. So it was, I, I was there two years and it was like one day. I mean, it was uh, very, very demanding, but I really enjoyed that, those years in the Pacific Fleet. And, and of course, when you receive the call from the president that you're going to be the head of the Navy, it's... Uh, well, basically, the 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 biggest uh, honor of your of your life or your of your career, but the work is different. I mean, it's more uh, more strategic, more politics. Uh, you are involved in a lot of uh, decisions for the whole country, uh, so you are not like in the operational part, uh, uh, thinking and doing what you really think you is gonna have to be done. Here you are in another level of strategic thinking and, and you know, uh, uh, assessments and things like that. Mm -hmm. Wow. And help us understand a little bit more as well. <laughs> One thing that I was just thinking when we were speaking was, as a consumer of intelligence, like in your career, you were, as the head of the Navy or the Pacific Fleet, you were consuming intelligence. 
what one piece of advice would you like to give to people that are producing it? So quite often the producers are told to bear in mind what the consumer wants. What, what advice would you give uh, to them? Well, I, I think that the, the best advice is, I would say that the truth, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's basic for everything in life and in intelligence too, because sometimes you can find a situation where the intelligence to tell you that you are, uh, that, that they have the information and that they are doing good. Sometimes they tend to give you uh, information that is not confirmed or it's real true. My advice is don't do that. I mean, you always, uh, you know, confirm the information and, and, if you do that, if they do that, they will gain the support and the trust of the commander. And this is a key point. This is a key point here because, I mean, I, I used to trust whatever it takes, my, my chief of intelligence when I was in the Pacific Coast. I have no doubts because he was always telling me the truth and confirmed information. If you lose that trust, that will be terrible. So that, that would be like my, my advice to them. Mm -hmm. And we have an exhibit opening up at the museum soon on Operation Hake. So tell our listeners a little bit more about that. Just summarize what Hake was and, and help us understand what you were doing when this operation happened. Okay. Well, there was a, a masterpiece of her operation. Uh, uh, Basically, I, I, I didn't. I, I was not involved in in that operation. I was uh, at that time. I was uh, starting my my job as commander of the Colombian Coast Guard. So I was more like in the in the narco traffic and the sea life at sea kind of job. But this was uh, we call that the perfect operation because there was no. No, no guns. I mean, no, no one shot was used, and 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 these guys were able to to liberate these these hostages, uh, uh, including three Americans uh, that were there. So th this was a a typical, I would say, intelligence with the stratagem thinking of our people. It was a bright idea. It began with the, with the intelligence community in the army. Basically, they are very well trained and very good people with a lot of initiative. So they came up with this idea. They presented to the chain of command and they agree and they came up with that. Basically, they what they did was make this guy think that their operators were really talking and they were uh, change the forces in Colombia. But I'm sure that in the seminar there will be some, some uh, uh, really good explanation of that. Uh, a lot of people that actually participated in that operation will be here. So that will be real good to, you know, to talk to them. And uh, although this was a, like a Colombian operation, a lot of things behind came from the training and the support of the U.S. intelligence community. Basically, information sharing, training, uh, education, and everything. I was not involved in that, in that operation. It was very secret at that time, you know, uh, uh, the operators and the higher commanders of the army at that time. And just for our listeners, it's the FARC, a uh, left-wing insurgent movement. They kidnap uh, some Americans and some Colombians and basically it's a rescue mission to get them out of that situation. And one of the Colombians that was rescued includes a current presidential candidate. Is that a okay summary, do you think? Yes, right, right now, I, uh, 
that, that's a good summary. I mean, basically, that is is a rescue operation with, uh, and uh, in other words, important people over there. Wow! And just for our listeners, help them visualize where in the country this was. Where did Operation Hake happen? Was it like the northeast, the southwest? It was a southeast, more or less, part of the country. But that's a huge area anyway. So, so because Colombia, you tend to think that it's a small country, but but it's not. I mean, it's uh, if you compare, we are like France, Spain, and Portugal together. So it's, it's quite big. It's smaller than the United States, but it's it's, it's, it's a big ex- extension. Can you help us understand some of the other ways in which the United States intelligence community has helped to build up the Colombian intelligence services? We've spoke about this previously, the the training, the the intelligence, um, some of the other things. What, what kind of things did you see that helped the professionalization of Colombian intelligence? Well, I, I would say that, first of all, the structure... They, they, they help us to how to structure the intelligence, how to organize the intelligence sections and special groups and things like that. They 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 gave us advice on that, although the decisions were made by Colombians, but we received that advice. This is the better way to organize an intelligence services, a service like the, the chief, these kind of groups, they the human intelligence, technical intelligence. Now we're working on cyber intelligence and things like that. So we got that, basically that advice. And after that, we came with our own organization. But I think that was key point. The other thing was, uh, with all this support, I think that our uh, commanders at the higher level, they started to 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 realize the importance of the people and and that's why we went all th- through this this career path thing and uh, the selection of the best people to go to intelligence which is very very important and and finally two things the other was the the trust i think that w- was really important to when we worked to with the us is to establish these trust uh, mechanisms to finally share information. And sometimes that trust is uh, like uh, in front of each other. You have to know each other, not only you know by communications or a phone call. So they need to join, to meet each other, and we start creating this, this kind of trust. And after that, came the information sharing. So that was like a, the sequence. And, and, and other big part was, was the, the technological equipment that we were trained to operate and we operate with, with, uh, with the U.S. Basically, that, that was the key point to somehow position the Colombian intelligence as... as as being a, a well uh, worldwide recognized as, as as a very good intelligence, especially we, we have now a, like an intelligence law. We didn't have that before, so we are sure that we or our intelligence community complies with all the international standards, human rights, and all the laws that are available for this kind of. Uh, specific job. Wow. And help us understand the Colombian intelligence landscape. So we don't need to talk about every agency or whatever, but how many are there? You know, in the United States, there's 17 and then the the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and there's the NRO and the NGA that are doing satellites. And so we don't, we don't need to go into all of them, but just give us a, a, a sense of some of the major military ones and some of the major civilian intelligence agencies. Yeah, well, there's a lot. We, we have the military. Every service has its uh, intel organization, which is expanding every day. 
I was mentioning that right now we have the cyber intel in, in every service working on that. The national police will have that too. We have the director of national in intelligence, which is a big, big agency. We have uh, like uh, government agencies dedicated to work with uh, illegal financing. So they, they are there. They share information with other intelligence agencies. Uh, the Air Force, of course, is working uh, very strong in, in satellites and things like that with cooperation or international cooperation. And basically that's, that's uh, the, the intel community that we have. It could be between 12 and 15 agencies. And what's the equivalent of like the CIA and the FBI or MI6 and MI5? Do you have a, a foreign uh, human intelligence service? See, we, we, we don't have like uh, that kind of missions, mm -hmm. basically. Uh, our intelligence, as far as uh, I know at this point, is, is concentrated in national security, uh, more in the internal part, since we still have a lot of challenges uh, to democracy, challenges, in internal challenges with uh, the dissidents, with uh, terrorist groups, narco-traffic, uh, criminal gangs. So our intelligence services are more concentrated in, in, in this, in our intelligence situation. And staying on, staying on the topic of uh, intelligence, was there ever any, uh, <laughs> yeah, was there ever any moments in your career when you had to make a judgment call based on intelligence that, that you were like, oh, this is, this is a gamble because the intelligence you get is never, this horse is definitely going to win the race. It's, this is the one we think is going to win the race or here's the top two contenders. So there's lots of gray areas and there's lots of places where you're you're making a judgment call or you're taking a gamble effectively. So is there a particular situation that you're able to talk about even at a, a more general level where you were in a tough spot and intelligence either helped you or it was gray and you weren't sure what to do with it? Well, I mean, when you're uh, like uh, conducting uh, military operations in, in the middle of, of a struggle like the one we had, um, it was always challenging. Uh, it was almost impossible to have the perfect intelligence information. But uh, uh, I can tell you like an anecdote uh, that happened to me we were like uh, ready to make a, a big operation against a FARC camp where, with a lot of people, uh, very key people inside, uh, leaders of that. So we have good intelligence. It uh, was in the middle, middle of the jungle. So we were ready. Basically, we were ready to, to deliver the operation. And at the last minute, one of our intelligence guys that was uh, uh, around there, he gave us some like uh, additional information was timely that there were some people around that were not part of, uh, of that group. So, and, well, and before that, uh, we always have something that we call the legal advisor for every operation uh, that's, one thing that the Colombian military always do. We have a legal operational advisor working with the commander. So every target has to be uh, validated as a legitimate target. So after all the planning, I called this guy and he told me, okay, this is a legitimate target. No problem. Go ahead. And I got that information right before so we gather again, decision-making people. And I made the decision to abort the operation because of that information. And I think it was a good call. We did the operation in other way, I mean, with other kind of approach. But uh, if you combine 
good and timely intelligence with the legal aspects of those operations, you can make good calls. And in this case, we minimize the collateral damage that could happen on that one. So it was, it was a struggle, but uh, I, I did it, and I think that was the right decision. And I was also wondering, during the course of your career, did you ever, being aide-de-camp to the president, being uh, the head of the Navy or the head of the Coast Guard, did you ever, I don't know, you know, these these uh, narco organizations and, and terrorist organizations, by their very nature, are violent? Did you, uh, yeah, what was it like for you at a personal level? Did you... Did you constantly have to have security guards with you or, yeah, help us understand the kind of more human part of it because just on the surface it all sounds, oh wow, you know, the head of the Navy, the head of this, but it affects your day-to-day life as well, right? Yes, yes. Basically, uh, in Colombia we have like a very critical situation in that that sense. So when you get to those kind of uh, jobs, general or admiral, you will have some kind of uh, of security provided by the force. We receive a lot of information uh, uh, about your movements and things like that. So uh, you have to, to be aware. It's not that you just go walk in and, and go to a restaurant. It's, it's almost impossible. Uh, but... but uh, but you have the, the, the ways to, to provide your own security. But it's tricky. It's tricky for the family. Sometimes uh, uh, your kids go to university and you don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, but I think that we, we learn how to, to deal with those, those challenges. Uh, but, but, but we do have, we do have uh, uh, security and intelligence. And, and the bad guys, sometimes they... If they want to do something bad, I mean, they, they find the information and, and they can act against one of, one of us. I don't know. But yes, it affects very much uh, the personal life. And just to bring everything to a close, am I right in thinking that your father was in the Korean War? Oh, yes. yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for mentioning that. Uh, yeah, well, you know, Colombia was... I think we're the only country or Latin American country that heeded the call of the United Nations and the United States to go and participate in the, in the Korean War. Basically, we did it with an army battalion and three uh, Navy frigates, but there was like a rotation, one at a time. And uh, in one of those frigates, my father served as a weapons officer, it was uh, interesting. I mean, I guess they were, well, he mentioned me uh, several times that they did naval gunfire support, support of landing, targeting land, escort, and patrol, all these areas. And it was uh, very tense, always like in a, in a combat situation. And they used to go to Sasebo in Japan for training and for uh, replenishment. So there were there were the good times over there. But yes, he was he, he always speak about that at uh, uh, that time. And and I think that 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 was very important for Colombia. We we still have a, a very strong relationship with Korea. A lot of uh, cooperation with them, and and they respect Colombia very much. Was he your inspiration to join the navy? Was he a career navy man, or was he just in for a was he in for a shorter period of time? No, actually, he went almost all the way through. Oh, really? He retired when he was vice admiral, and he was the second commander of the navy at that time. So, so you so, beat your dad. Huh? You beat your dad, you got to the oh, top yeah. job. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, well, I, I guess I, I used to, you know, see him, you know, going on the ships and, and the, white, the white uniform that always calls the attention of, of uh, everybody. And, and then when the time was right, I, I just signed for 
for the Navy. And, mm-hmm. But I didn't, I didn't thought that it was, uh, that I was going to stay for so long. It, it was, it's like, you know, year by year. And uh, if you enjoy what you're doing and you like what you're doing, the time is, is nothing. Well, thanks ever so much for sharing your story with me. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Oh, Andrew, thank you very much for having me here. And uh, I mean, uh, it's a pleasure. And I hope that uh, all these uh, uh, interviews will deliver all the objectives that you're willing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at SpyHistorian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K Cyberwire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.